It is good to be with you this morning. <clears throat> I want to uh, welcome you, those of you who are here in the room and, uh, and those that are online today. Thank you for being here. A number of us are back from a men's retreat that took place this weekend. We had about 50 men in attendance. It was a great time that was shared at that event. I want to publicly thank Chris and James uh, for being a part of helping lead and make that happen. And the work that they put into that, <clears throat> that event, it was, a, it was a really great weekend. Before I start in my sermon this morning, I want to take just a minute um, and officially recognize and welcome Justin and Allison Myers. Justin and Allison have been with us for a long time, and, and, uh, but want to officially be recognized as a part of this body. And their kids, Riley, uh, who's in second grade, and Bennett, who is not quite a year old yet. Um, and so I want to I want to ask uh, if you would, I know you just sat down, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me again. We're going to pray for our time in God's Word together. If you're near Justin and Allison, I didn't ask you all, if you just make sure you just, you just let us know where you are really quickly. I'm going to embarrass Allison and Justin, and they hate this. Just let, if you're near them and want to go put a hand on them, I'm going to pray for them uh, as we start this morning, and, um, and then we'll jump into God's Word and our time together today. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning grateful for an opportunity to be here as a church family. I'm thankful for this group of people and the, uh, the gift that they are to me and to this community. And I pray uh, today as we gather here uh, that all that we do is uh, honoring and pleasing to you, Father. This morning, as we, uh, as we, before we start our time in, in your word, we want to pray a blessing over Justin and Allison uh, and their family. We want to pray for Riley and Bennett. We're thankful that they want to be recognized as a part of this body, and we pray that you will bless them in every way. Uh, we already see the way that you're growing <clears throat> them and uh, that they are on a journey uh, deeper with you, and we just continue to pray that you'll fan that flame uh, in their lives and their hearts, and we're excited about the ways that you'll do that, Father, in the days and weeks ahead as they uh, lock arms with us and continue to journey ahead together in life um, as we move forward. We pray, Father, this morning also for our time in your word. Uh, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we think about uh, how to live as your people, uh, how to be people who uh, live questionable lives, who live lives um, intentionally as we seek to be people who share the hope that we have with those around us. And so we pray, Father, for our our time together this morning as we study your word. We pray in the name of Jesus and the church said, amen. Thank you guys so much for standing again with me. <clears throat> so today is um, week three in the series that we are in, Surprise the World is the name of the series, and we are thinking together in this series about uh, evangelism, about sharing our faith. Uh, it's a series about taking intentional opportunities to share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And I want to just remind us <clears throat> about a couple of things. Sort of the foundational assumption of this series is this idea that all of us want to, I believe, share our faith. All of us want to uh, share the hope that we have, but often the case is that many of us do not feel like that we know how to do that. Uh, we, we, feel, we feel like this maybe this responsibility or this burden to, to share our faith with people around us, to share the hope that we have, but we don't often know how to go about 
doing that. And so I've been saying as we, since we started this series that I think a primary way that many of us have thought about evangelism is that it's a job for all of us. It's a job that all of us have a responsibility for and that not only something that we feel like we should do, but it's something that we feel like that we should be good at, right? That we should not only be evangelistic, but we also should be really good at evangelism. And then when we often feel like we're not great at evangelism, uh, we maybe feel guilty or we feel ashamed about that somehow. And so we've been sort of challenging that idea in this series uh, to say something maybe a little different, right? That maybe there are people who are specifically skilled and gifted at evangelism, but maybe for the rest of us, there's some other way to think about that. And maybe that's not your primary mode of operation is going to be to be living your life as an evangelist would, as a person who might be gifted as an evangelist would. And so that's really what this series is about. I would say it this way. This series is a series for the rest of us who maybe don't feel like that uh, evangelism is a gift or something that's kind of naturally comes to us. And so the, the study that we're doing is really an attempt to try to give us some practical ways of thinking about how to share the hope that we have. And, and one of the things we've done is look at uh, Colossians chapter 4, where Paul talks to the church in Colossae about this idea. Uh, and he says these words, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray also for us. Paul's saying, pray for those of us that are gifted evangelists. Pray too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. But then he turns and he says, this is what I want for you. I, wanna, I want you to be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders, right? These spirit-filled believers. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The world needs evangelists is part of what we've been saying, but it also needs believers who are really just simply committed to being the kind of people that know how to answer people when they ask you about the hope that you have. When they ask you why you do things, when they ask you why you live a certain way, why you speak a certain way, why did you make this decision instead of that decision? The world needs believers who can live this way where their, their language is seasoned with salt and their conversations are always full of grace. And they live in such a questionable way that it, it makes people wonder what's different about them. And then when they ask, you have an opportunity to say what it is, in fact, that's different about you is not you, but it's Christ living in you. And he's the reason that you do the things that you do, that you make the decisions that you make, that you speak the way that you speak, that you behave the way you behave. And so my goal with this series is that when we finish in a couple of weeks, that we will all hopefully walk away with some skills, some tools that we feel like practical things that we feel like we can use in our actual lives Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday on the, on the other days that are not Sunday when we're gathered as a church that can help us live in a way that people notice. In his book, Michael Frost calls these practices missional habits, and, and these are the habits that we're talking about in this series. They're the habits of bless and eat and listen and learn and sent, being sent. And today we're going to talk about eating 
the spiritual practice of eating. James set us up well for what we're going to talk about in his thoughts around the communion table. Last week we talked about the first one about blessing others, and I challenged you to bless three people last week. If you missed that sermon and this is the first that you're hearing about it, you have some makeup homework assignments to do. Uh, you get to bless three people this week. So, And the rest of us who did hear it, we're going to continue to try to do that. right? We're going to continue to try to live in that way. But today we're going to talk about Eating And eating, of course, is one of, if not all of our favorite subjects. Uh, eating is an interesting thing. I was thinking about how many meals that we, I've eaten in my lifetime, how many meals you've eaten in your lifetime. Obviously, it changes depending on how old you are, but I did the math in my life, and I think I have eaten around 45,000 meals in my lifetime. And that's assuming that I, may, you know, that I ate about three meals a day for most of my life, which has been the case. So eating is a normal, common, ordinary thing that you and I do every day. We do it multiple times a day. And today I want to think about not only eating, but eating as a spiritual practice. And that's what I've titled today's sermon. It's, it's maybe, maybe for some of you, this might be your dream sermon. You're like, you're like I've always wanted to know that the preacher was going to give us permission to think of eating as a spiritual thing that we could do. And so if that's you, today's your day. This is the sermon you've been waiting for maybe your whole life. So eating as a spiritual practice. Amen, James? <clears throat> so it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an idea, of, again, something that we do all the time, but I want to talk about it in a little different way this morning and hopefully help us think about it in a way that can help us live with some intentionality in our lives. And so it will probably not come as any surprise that from the beginning of Christianity, <clears throat> eating has been an incredibly important thing uh, in, the, in the life of, of the church, in the life of individuals that were following Jesus. Some of you will recall uh, back in week one of this series that I shared that in the fourth century, uh, there was a Roman emperor named <clears throat> Julian, and Ju Christians referred to Julian as Julian the Apostate because he rejected Christianity. Julian became so afraid of the Christian movement and the way Christianity was growing in his nation that it was sort of subverting and starting to take over the Roman Empire, or that's what he felt like was happening, that he sent out this message to all of his officials. And I want to read again what I read to you in week one, not to repeat it, but to focus on a different part of it this week than I did back in week one. And I want to remind you before I do read it that what, what he said, because his language is it's older and it's kind of maybe a little harder to understand. When we read it, he's going to refer to Christians as Galileans. And so when you see that word, you know he's talking about Christians. And he's going to refer to Christianity as atheism, which might feel backwards to you because people who have faith now often refer to people who don't have faith as atheists. But the reason that he refers to Christians as atheists, atheists and Christianity as atheism is because of their denial of the existence of pagan gods, of gods that, that he worshiped. And so this is what he said. Again, listen to these words. He said, we must pay special attention to this point. Again, he's, remember, he's writing to his officials. He's concerned about what's happening with Christianity. He says, we must pay special attention to this point, and by this means, effect a cure. For when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the Roman priests, right? The poor in their own society were being overlooked and neglected by their priests. Then I think this, the impious Galileans observed this fact. They noticed, Christians noticed the poor and neglected are not being taken care of by their own country, by their own rulers, by their own authority. And they devoted themselves to philanthropy. 
and they gained and they have gained ascendancy meaning they have things are growing things are increasing in the worst of their deeds through their credit they win for such practices right so he's saying christians are noticing that there are poor and neglected people the nation isn't taking care of them julian's not taking care of them and so they say we're going to do it and as they do it people start noticing why are these christians who don't believe the same thing we believe taking care of us and loving us and then he says this for just as those who entice children with cake and by throwing it to them two or three times induce them to follow them. And then when they are far away from their friends, they take those children and they cast them on board a ship and they sell them as slaves. He's describing what's happening with people who are trying to buy, you know, steal kids and sell them into slavery. And he says, by the same method, I say the Galileans also begin with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out and hence call it by many names. And the result is that they have had, that they have led very many into atheism, which is Christianity. Now you can leave that slide up for just a second because we're going to talk about it. I want you to listen what he's, to what he's observing about the church in the fourth century. He references this cake thing, right? Apparently in that time, how depraved it is that in order to try and sell kids into slavery, they would entice them with cake and then they would throw them onto ships. And Julian is saying that this is what Christians are doing when they gather and welcome people. What Christians are doing when they gather and they welcome people, when they invite people into their homes, when they invite people into their gatherings, when they care for the poor and neglected, it's like that, he's saying. Julian the emperor was so concerned about Christianity and Christian hospitality that he sends out this message. And he is so threatened by, the, by, the way, by this spiritual practice of eating and the way that it's influencing his culture, that he sends out this message to his officials, we have to stop this. We've got to do something. It's getting out of hand. Now, I want you to imagine just for a minute in our time that the American government is so concerned that the officials in Kaufman County are so concerned about the radical hospitality of Kaufman Church of Christ that they send out a press release you guys got to be careful. There's this group of Christians that meet over at 27 Oak Creek Drive. They are doing something. They call it a lot of different things. Sometimes they call it hospitality. Sometimes they call it a love feast. They call it the service of tables. They call it whatever they want to call it. You just need to be aware that it's, it's, it's impacting things and we don't like it. Watch out for those Christians that are showing such radical hospitality and welcoming everybody to their tables, anybody, people they agree with and people they don't agree with. Can you imagine this with me? Because this is what Julian does. His concern is that one of the ways that Christians are messing things up are, in his words, with these so-called Love feasts. I, I just feel like every time I hear that word, love, that phrase, love feast, I feel like I don't know what it is. We need to bring it back, right? We need to, we need, to, we need some, we need a love feast ministry. Maybe that's like you know old language for like good old fashioned church potluck. I have no idea, but whatever it was, it was messing with Julian, and he was not happy about it. 
He doesn't even know what to call it because apparently they call it different things. They have different ways of carrying out and many different things that they, it goes by. Hospitality is what he's talking about, though. And all he knows is that he wants it stopped. And so what is it he's referring to exactly? Well, there were these meals uh, that, that as, as the church would gather, they would share the Lord's Supper. But there was also a, a practice, a part of the practice is that they would also have a meal with the Lord's Supper as a part of their gathering. As James said, when they, would eat, you know, when they met, they, they were eating. They were, it was a part of the rhythm of their life. And so they were taking this ordinary practice of eating that they also did many, many times, multiple times a day. And they were turning it into a spiritual practice. It wasn't just get through the fast food line as quickly as I can and get on my way and eat the food in my car as I'm going. No, there was an intentionality with their eating. Instead of just eating, they were eating with a purpose. They were welcoming people to their tables. They were sharing their food. They were opening their homes and their lives to people in their community. And it was making such a mess of the order that Julian wanted to keep. That's what they were doing. But what I want to think about for a second is why were they doing it? For the earliest Christians, the practice of hospitality was rooted in, was anchored in what they believed about God and how God had always behaved toward them. Here's what the Bible says. Listen to what the Bible says, the Hebrew Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving, giving, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. This description of who God is and God's character, it includes this love of aliens and strangers. So the practice of hospitality was anchored in this idea, right, that this is what God is like, and so this is what God wants you to be like. We do what we see God doing. We invite because God invited us first. We were included as outsiders, so we include others as well. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that ushers into the world a way of life where we do because we've seen God do first. And again, this is the idea. I can't overstate how this is the idea that anchored Christian hospitality. The, the way they thought about hospitality was rooted in this idea that it was all about God's gracious welcome of us to his table. And all of this talk about eating takes on added significance when you think that, again, the one thing, James already talked about this a little bit in, in his communion thoughts, the one thing that Jesus actually told us to do every day, every week when we meet together is eat. We eat the bread and we drink the cup because before Jesus died, he told his disciples at that last supper, do these things as a way to remember me. And so we're still doing that 2,000 years later. And since that last supper, the table, not the sermon, not the singing, not the prayers, not the fellowship, not any other part of worship was the central part. The table has been the central part of the worship gathering because it's the table where we remember Christ, where we remember Jesus, his life and his death, and even his resurrection, 
where we remember our commitment to him. But in addition to remembering Jesus, we also are announcing an invitation. The table, we understand, right, is not the church's table. It's Jesus's table. It's a table that's open to people who love him and people who want to love him more. It's a table that communicates hospitality and does not exclude people. There are seats at Jesus' table for people who have deep faith and people who are struggling to hold on to their faith. There are seats at Jesus' table for those who have tried to follow Jesus and for those who have failed to follow Jesus. And there are seats for those who are new and there are seats for those who have been around a while. Everybody is welcome. And as good as the early church was at offering their love feasts and apparently upsetting things in Julian's eyes, upsetting, you know, governing government officials along the way, it wasn't always that way. The church in the city of Corinth was hospitable, but they were, they were also human and they didn't always do things the right way. They forgot the story about God and God's people and, and how God had always been gracious toward them. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to begin in verse 17. It'll also be up here on the screen. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So, so then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter, he says. Instead of hosting tables, I want to stop there for just a minute. Instead of hosting tables that were radically hospitable, that were welcoming to people, instead of hosting these love feasts that made people question why they were so kind and why they were so welcoming and why they were so gracious, there was this conflict and division that existed in this church. And what was supposed to happen was that when you gathered together as a family, all of your social labels got checked at the door, right? So whoever you were when you lived your life during the rest of the week didn't matter when you stepped into the church. Once you stepped into the church, it didn't matter what you did or how much money you made or where, what part of town you lived in or didn't live in. None of that mattered. Because in Christ, Paul has been teaching in other places, and a whole, those labels and a whole bunch of other labels, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all of those faded away once you stepped into the doors of the church. Once you crossed the threshold, right, of the house where the church was gathering, all of those labels that we tend to use stopped mattering. But apparently, instead of being inclusive, this church was being exclusive and they were still recognizing these, these labels that people carried with them in their lives. So they weren't checking those labels at the door. There was a rich person's table and there was a poor person's table. It was like the family Thanksgiving meal with the adult table and the kid table, right? And there were, the, there were those who were poor, Paul says, that were left hungry as a result of this. They were behaving in church 
Listen, watch this, just like they did in the world. There was nothing questionable about that. Why would someone be drawn to that or attracted to that or curious about that, Paul says? If when you walk into the door, you still carry all the labels that you do when you're outside, why does it matter? Why does that matter enough that it's going to be something someone else would be interested in and go, what is up with that group of people that call themselves Christians? And so Paul is, I don't think we can really hear as much. You didn't hear as much in my reading of those words, but I imagine him being furious about this. He says, I can't praise you. You're despising the church of God, which is really strong language. And so this is the suggestion he makes about what to do next. Listen to this in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drink or drinks the cup in the of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink <clears throat> judgment on themselves. Now, Paul says in these words, when you gather, here's the solution. When you gather, in order to not do what you're doing, I want you to start by remembering Jesus, remembering what Jesus did with his disciples. And Paul seems to believe that as they do this, it will help them to remember that the Christian community functions in a different way, right? That the Christian community is to be a place of welcome and inclusion, not exclusion. It's a place of hospitality, not a place where people are treated with disrespect, and this is also, I believe, why he says and why he tells them to examine themselves before they eat. Many of us have heard this passage of Scripture used as maybe even a suggestion or a command that you're about how you're supposed to take the bread and the cup that we take every single week. Maybe you were taught at some point that it, you're supposed to, in order for you to examine, you're like examining yourself actually means you're supposed to sit and think about your life and all of the things that happened in the past week, and you're really supposed to do an evaluation of yourself. And to some extent that that's true. Maybe you, you think it has to mean that when we take the communion supper together, I have to sit quietly with my head bowed as I do that. And I want to say if you do that, that's fine to do that. There is certainly nothing wrong to, with doing that. But I don't think that's exactly what he's saying here. What Paul is saying is when you take the body and the blood of Christ, check your heart and make sure that you're doing this practice in the right way. And the right way is not so much about you, actually, but it's actually about everybody else. Is everybody welcomed at this table? Is everybody included? Is anybody being left out? Is anybody leaving hungry? He mixes metaphors a bit here. He says you're eating the body of Christ and paying attention to the body of Christ. Are you with me? You're eating the body of Christ and you're paying attention to the body of Christ. So he uses sort of the same phrase in two kind of two different ways. And he wants you to pay attention to Christ, 
So again, fine to do some evaluation, fine to do some reflection and examination, but also, are we looking around the room? Are we paying attention? Are we living life in a way where our eyes are not always focused on ourselves? Paul is saying this is a table for everybody, for those who have been here often and for those who are new and have never been here before. It's a table for those people who have tried to follow Jesus, and it is a table for those who have failed to follow Jesus. I want you to think about it this way. When they gathered as the church, when we gather as the church, and we share a meal together every week, it isn't much, it's not intended to fill us up, it's intended to be symbolic, but what's happening is more than just taking a piece of bread and drinking a little shot of grape juice, right? It's actually giving you and me a chance to practice here with other Christians, with other people who are trying to follow Jesus, what we hopefully will eventually do in our lives. I love the way that Michael Frost says it in his book. Listen to this quote. He says, the habitual practice, I think I have a slide for this, The habitual practice of the love feast was to be an incubator in which Christians learned to accept the outsider, offer generosity to the poor, and have fellowship with those of so-called lower rank. As Paul concludes, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. He says in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 11, the weekly rhythm of the communal feast was meant to help shape the Corinthians into radical socializers, right? That what we do when we gather is practice for our real lives. One of the reasons that God wants us, that Jesus wanted the church to examine themselves and to be sure that they're eating the body of bread and the blood of Christ and examining the body of Christ is so that as we go out into the world, we're already living this way. We're living as people who have been shaped by the table that we get to sit at every single week. So we naturally then want to invite people to our table, whatever table we're sharing, whatever table we're eating at. And I believe this because do you remember what we read from Deuteronomy a moment ago? Right? Israel's history has been shaped as an outsider. And for us, it isn't just about inviting people to be here with us at church. It's about this place and our experience with Jesus here that gives us an awareness of how to think about extending hospitality to other people in our lives throughout the week. And so here's the challenge for this week. My challenge is this. I want you to eat with three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of our church. I want you to eat eat with three people this week, at least one of whom is not a member of our church. So last week we talked about blessing three people. This week we're adding eating. And like I said last week, I need to reiterate it because some of us forgot it. We weren't here. We didn't hear it. Whatever it may be, I don't want you to get legalistic about any of these things that we're going to walk through in this series, get pharisaical about it. We're not walking through these practices so you can be like, well, I was kind of feeling guilty about not being evangelistic. And now I'm feeling guilty about the fact that I don't have enough margin in my schedule to add eating with three people in a week, right? If that... It's not, that's not the point of what we're talking about. My point is, you are going to eat about 20 meals this week. Unless you're not a breakfast person, you know, 
You're, and you probably, if you're not a breakfast person, you're probably still going to have coffee. So you're probably going to do something in the morning. So if you're, if you're going to eat about 20 meals this week, I'm just asking you to do three of those meals with people. And you can be creative about how you apply the practice, apply the challenge. It could be coffee. It could be a sack lunch. It could be sitting with people for conversation for hours. It could be a, a drink in the afternoon or a full meal. It could be in your home. You can invite somebody over. You could go to their house. You could go to a restaurant. You, if you're married, you could do this together. You can do it with a friend. I, I, don't, I don't care how you do it. I want you to be creative about how you live into it. And again, I, I, I've imagined some of, some of us as we hear the challenge thinking, Doug, if I do that every week, that's too much. I got a budget to think about. I, got, I want you to let it be natural and organic. Let it make sense. It's with coworkers. It's with neighbors. It's with friends. It's as you're living your life, looking for opportunities to be intentional, right? If it takes several weeks to do it, fine. The goal is to try it. Spend some time praying about who it is in your circle of relationships. Maybe it's one person. One of the things that I've been thinking about is someone in my circle of relationships and it may be that, that you identify one person and you just try to be intentional sharing a table with that person that's not a part of our church specifically uh, over a longer period of time, right? If you do that over a long period of time, what's going to happen is that there's going to be some roots and some depth that eventually gets to kind of get created as a result of the table that you're sharing. You've heard me say before, you are closest to the people that you eat most often with. It's not, it's, there's no like magic science to it. It's just you, you're going to be closer to people that you share a table with. And if you, if you think about the people you're close to, you think about the numbers of meals that you eat with those people, it's probably true in your life. The goal is to share a table with someone and to talk and to listen. And what we know about the table is that it's this great equalizer of relationships and what we know about the table is when we sit at a table with someone, we learn what matters to them. We get the chance to listen to them and their concerns and their hopes and their fears and their disappointments. And listen, remember what I mentioned last week, right? This is the last, last thing. If you, if you live to bless people, that you're going to become a more generous person. And it's the same with eating with people, with this practice of eating with people. If you're regularly sharing tables and eating with people, you are going to become a more hospitable person. Start with the practice and trust that the value is going to be produced in our lives. We aren't interested in getting something from somebody. It's not a bait and switch thing. I'm actually calling you to relationships with people, right? To be locked in and laser focused on being a friend to someone, being different, being present with them, putting your phone away and looking them in the eye, loving people the way that they want to be loved, the way that you and I want to be loved. And this also includes accepting invitations to other people's tables. As we lean into relationships with people, right, are we willing to go to their space and not always be the host? Of course, Jesus is our great model for this too. Always spending time in other people's homes at other people's tables. We may not practice this habit, this missional habit right away in a perfect way, and that's fine. The goal is for us to practice it. And following Jesus takes practice. And unfortunately, so much of Christianity has become, let's just accept these ideas and the, these beliefs and then do nothing else. But this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. Our faith, we know, right? We understand our faith is supposed to be practiced. And the more we practice, the more our lives will be shaped and formed by Jesus through the practicing of our faith. So this week, let's eat with three people, at least one of whom is not a member of our church family. 
Let's welcome people to our table. Let's accept invitations to go to their tables with the intention of reminding all of us about how we have been welcomed at Jesus' table, with the intention of reclaiming eating as a spiritual practice and not something you just do to nourish your body. And let's just see if together, if we really practice this, if we really lean into this over time, if we might become an increasingly hospitable people. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing another song before our shepherd's prayer. I invite you to sing uh, together as we reflect on how God has welcomed us to his table. Let's sing together this morning.